Hello and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. Uh, my name is Patrick and I'm still your host. I've been hiding for a little while. Uh, my apologies. Actually, while I'm on it, I would like to apologize. Some of you know and many of you probably don't, but it's gone on long enough to where I feel like I can no longer not talk about it. Uh, I am going through a divorce and with COVID and going through that and having kids home all the time, uh, the podcast has taken a back seat. So I apologize to all the listeners, all the people who support the show through Patreon. Um, I am not going anywhere, but I am dealing with some stuff that uh, just requires time. So I think everybody understands this is a crazy time. Now throw a divorce on top. Merry Christmas. <laughs> so I don't uh, want to make it a humorous situation, but I would like to say that um, I am really okay. I am, I'm happy. I'm very much at peace. And uh, this is just one of those bumps in life. Um, I look at a lot of things like through riding bikes and bike packing. Um, I feel like sometimes you're climbing the mountain and sometimes you're on a three hour descent. Three hours a lot. Let's say a 30 minute descent down the mountain. You're always on the mountain. It's just sometimes it's harder than others. So I'm just climbing a mountain right now, but I know it's okay because I'll hit that downhill and be grinning ear to ear before you know it. Okay, sorry about that, but I felt like it needed to be said. Today's episode is actually one of my favorites. I don't like to play favorites uh, with my episodes, but... Um, I was just really happy with how well it all went together. I listened to the whole thing through. It just was a great flowing conversation. Um, if you're not familiar with James, you should be. He has been one of the guys at front. He's one transcontinental twice. Uh, this guy is the real deal. And this whole time he's been getting his undergraduate degree. And now all bets are off. He's all training, all in, going professional bike pack ultra endurance racer. What is that? We don't know. We talk about it on the podcast, actually. It was an absolute fantastic conversation. Uh, I hope that y'all enjoy it as much as I do. And I would like to thank James for coming on. Uh, he has he has just great perspectives on racing, why we race, why he's racing, what he's in it for, what he's getting out of it. It's great. He's a smart guy. You're going to like it. I promise. All right. Well, before we get to the show, as always, um, I appreciate so much all the support, especially during this time when I have been slacking. But again, I promise uh, not going anywhere, just shifting gears and uh, and, and kind of repriming the engine and get it getting it running again. But I can't tell you how good it feels to be releasing another episode right now. Um, it just feels great. So if you want to support the show, head over to bikesordeath.com. Pretty much the whole freaking website is like an ad for me because it's my website. The best way that you can support the show is through Patreon. That's basically a sustaining member. You commit to a dollar all the way up to like $10, or you can even give like way more than that if you want to. I don't care. I don't set a cap. Really, I don't. You can just donate as much as you want. Traditionally, what I've done is whenever you support the show, I send you like a sticker or patch, something like that. It depends on how much you contribute. But we are shifting 
to a different program. So now you are going to receive a promo code and that will give you money to spend at the Bikes or Death store. So if you don't like the sticker I was going to send you, you can get a different one. Or if you don't want a sticker but you want a shirt, you can throw a little coin to the shirt and make it cheaper, whatever you want to do. So I'm putting the power in your hands as patrons. We'll call it patron power. I'm giving you the power to buy whatever you want on my website. That's all, that's all the power you get. Speaking of the store, I have a big announcement I'm very excited about. As I'm sure you have, many people have been following along with the Black Lives Matter movement and what's going on in our society and our country right now. In response to this, Bikepacking Roots just released a program that they're calling the BIPOC Adventure Grant Program, which is going to help be a financial bridge for people of color to access the outdoors. And they've already raised a crazy amount of money. So I reached out to them and asked them if uh, Bikes or Death could contribute 1% of all of its proceeds to their grant program in perpetuity. And they said yes. So I'm very excited about this because this is something that I'm very passionate about and I do care about. And I'm so grateful that Bikepacking Roots has taken the initiative and creating, created this space so that companies can donate. Uh, I think I, I don't remember the number. They're up to like 20,000 or something crazy. Um, but this is going to be a real program that helps people of color access the outdoors. And that is clearly needed. Again, thank you everybody for the support. It's a crazy time out there. Take care of yourselves, love people, do the right thing. And uh, as always, Miles Arbor is going to take us away with the intro song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I have a very special guest calling in all the way from the UK. James Mark Hayden uh, is on the line with us today, and I'm super excited to talk to you, man. Thanks for uh, taking some time. Thank you for uh, inviting me on. It's, uh, it's a privilege. Oh, happy to have you. So just to get it started off, I would like to start with like some icebreakers, getting to know you questions. Um, so I understand that you just finished university. Uh, what, what was your degree in? Uh, so this was the second time I went to university. I went when I was 20, as most people do, to study economics, but didn't complete that degree. And I returned to school five years ago now to do a degree in civil engineering. Mm. And are you intending to use that degree right now? <laughs> right now, no. So I finished what we call an undergraduate degree in the UK. Um, mm -hmm. I could go on and do a master's, but I'm not. And at this point in time, I don't intend to get a civil engineering job like, you know, in the next few months, perhaps a few years, <laughs> if I can uh, get away with it. So, yeah. Yeah, I think we'll get into more of that uh, before, <laughs> but I uh, or as we go on. But, um, you know, my understanding is that you intend to uh, give ultra endurance bike racing a real stab as as a career. Yeah, 100 percent. 
So what were you thinking that you were going to do before as a profession, before you, uh, you know, bike racing became a reality uh, and, a, and a legitimate option for you? I didn't know. I guess around 24, 25 years old, I didn't have a degree. I didn't have many qualifications because I left school with pretty bad qualifications from A-levels. So when I'm 18, um, didn't get a degree the first time around. So I didn't perhaps have much, you know, behind me or to fall back on. And, you know, I made the decision that I wanted to go back into education to get something as an insurance policy. And then I could go forward with that. I went to see a careers advisor and, you know, she said that there were two options or three options for me. One was civil engineering. The other was um, sort of in the merchant Navy as a sailor, which perhaps Mm. could make sense. And the third one was a farmer. And, you know, if you start to put those together, you'll kind of understand who I am as a person. Uh, but, but yeah, I chose civil engineering because I've always been fascinated by how things work and, and the, the mechanics right. and the details. And, and I wasn't really sure exactly what I'd do with it, but I knew if I had a degree in civil engineering, I could uh, do, a, do a lot of things with that. Right. Smart, smart. So you have, you can go into bike racing, kind of put all of it into it and, and you have a degree in a, a you know, quote unquote, backup plan uh, there in place. Yeah. Yeah. I call it an okay, insurance so, policy. <laughs> an insur- yeah. I mean, dude, that's what it is. That's awesome. Smart. Yeah. Um, all right. So you're on an ultra race. Uh, what is your go-to gas station food? Um, I know you got to be quick. What are you going in looking forward to grab quick and get out of there? Probably like some chocolate milk straight away, get some calories and fluid in me. And then, you know, if they've got some sandwiches, a sandwich, because, you know, something savory is quite nice. And then I'll just grab either like some flapjacks or some chocolate bars, stuff like that, that I can stick in my pockets to, to take away as well. There you go. Okay. So you recently hit 10,000 on Instagram. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, if anything, did you do to celebrate? I, I didn't, you know, celebrate for myself because I don't sort of measure these things but I'm just you know privileged that so many people are interested in what I'm doing and with that I put up a you know a question to people to ask them you know say thank you you know for following along in this this journey of mine and uh, what, what would you like to hear from me what, what more can I offer you to help help you and inspire you yeah maybe celebrate is the right right word but I do like how you um, acknowledge that everybody's here and obviously a lot of people are interested in what you're doing. And, uh, I, you know, for anyone who has fallen along, I'm sure, you, you know, quite a few people were, um, a lot of good information was, uh, was delivered by you and answer a lot of questions. So, all right. Uh, the last one's a little bit of a doozy, but you've been, you know, my understanding from you, just from your website, I mean, 2013, you get into road racing, 2015, you get into ultra endurance. Can you just like recap the last seven years, uh, you know, quickly, like listing off some of, of your accomplishments over the last seven years? Oh, uh, yeah. Is that too big of a question? No, not, not really. No. I mean, my, my two main accomplishments are winning the, the transcontinental race it took. So I first tried it in 2015. No, I'm just trying, uh, 2014. Sorry, I always get that wrong. Um, <laughs> didn't manage to complete it that year. I scratched from the race. I learned a lot, came back the next year, and I managed to come fourth in perhaps what is one of my greatest rides I've ever done that sort of uh, flies under the radar to a lot of people. Um, came back a third time unfazed, un- un- and, and I won that year, and that was quite a special year. Then I came back a fourth time and won a second time. Uh, then since then, I sort of wanted to look for a new challenge. And I, the past 
last year I did um, sort of off-road ultra endurance racing. I wanted to switch things up and try a different discipline. And I've kind of continued with that this year. And then last year I placed joint first in the um, Italy Divide Challenge. Uh, completed in the competed in the Highland Trail 550, which is a serious mountain bike race in Scotland, which I was well out of my depth. Um, managed to finish sixth, incredibly, in a washed out edition. And then I went to Kyrgyzstan and raced a Silk Road mountain race with a bit more confidence from those two first events and came fourth there. So, yeah. And go back and uh, the only thing I know that I've heard about your road racing career is that there was a bad wreck. Uh, that that was a result of that racing it, did that have any impact I, I guess i'm curious about your transition from road racing to these ultra events how that got on your radar I, I didn't know if the wreck was like okay i'm out of this i'm doing something different um i wouldn't say it was like the ultimate nail in the coffin but it sort of was was a was an impact in that so i i started cycling when i was only sort of 21 um properly really you know i commuted on a bike here and there but that was you know five miles was sort of as far as it went and then i road raced in the uk reasonably well for someone who'd only been riding a year yeah. and then did that for a second year sort of at the top level within the domestic scene on the uk and as i as i kind of say got my head kicked in you know i was not great and then in that year i said to myself look if this doesn't go anywhere in to the next year to get on a proper team and start doing better i'm going to have to go and do something else because you can't keep flogging the same horse expecting different results really right yeah and so that was the point when i decided to go back to university to get get a degree and do something at the same time i was also quite bored of sitting in a car for four hours driving to a race getting my head kicked in driving four hours back home and I'd been experimenting with longer rides at this point because the reason I got into cycling and enjoyed it was the freedom of being outside and seeing new places. And I, I that year I'd followed the transcontinental race and I thought, oh my God, this is, this is <laughs> insane. How can you do this? It's not possible. And I, I can't really remember the sort of tipping point that caused me to enter, but I just sort of remember one day turning around to Isabel and just saying, I've got to do this. This is what I'm doing next year. And that was it. I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, I mean, it, it's just you and like Lachlan Morden are like the two that I know of that have gone from, uh, I mean, obviously he's like uh, pro pro um, road racing. And uh, I don't know that I don't know much about road racing. So maybe you're a pro and he's, I don't know. Oh, no, man. Is. I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm proper amateur, you know, schoolboy. Okay. I didn't want to different deliver a dish. No, you can, okay. you can, you can do me down compared with him because, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a but different, I, I do. Universe. I mean, it is so fascinating to make the transition from like road racing to ultra endurance um, racing. And then now you're into ultra endurance off road racing. Um, but I love the, I love the crossover and I love, uh, yeah, well, I love the diversity, honestly, of this ultra endurance sport It's just attracting people from all backgrounds and seems like it's just growing at such a rapid pace and there's a ton of interest. Yeah. Um, so how do you, how do you pick events that you want to do? And good, I'm guessing it's changed because in the beginning you probably just said, okay, TCR, that looks cool. I'm going to do that one. You do it a few more times. Like how how rigid are you with your choosing of routes or events that you want to tackle or yeah how do you how do you go about that yeah i guess the way it started and the way it is now are different in the beginning i just saw transcontinental and i and i and i be, you know became infatuated with it which is often what happens 
and it was sort of one of those things until I did it, it wouldn't go away. And then it was until I won it, it wouldn't go away and nothing else interested me. And having been around for a few years now, I just have a list of probably 30, m- m- perhaps more races, records, events, things I want to do. And it's sort of ever growing. And there's stuff that sits near the top of the list and there's stuff that sits lower down. And I'm just trying to tick off things at the top of the list. But I generally don't like to leave things unfinished once I've started. And so that means for me, um, the Silk Road Mountain Race is an objective at the moment to try and to not, I don't need to win it, but I need to be able to race it with a performance that I feel is the best I can do. And if that is second, third, fourth, or wherever I finish, that's fine. But as long as I've had a performance that I feel is my best, then I can tick that one off and then perhaps move on to something else. And the same with the Highland Trail 550. Uh, I still have things I want to achieve there. And so those are sit at the top of the list because they're the most recent. And then there are obviously a lot of other really amazing places and races that uh, are creeping up on that list and, and nagging at me, should I should I say. You know, I go to sleep at night thinking of them. <laughs> <laughs> Weighing all the pros and cons and which one. Yeah, it's becoming harder and harder. And I know you're saying it. I mean, the popularity of ultra endurance cycling um, is, is growing the amounts of routes, sponsors, I mean, athletes, it's all just yeah. exploding. So as we go down, it's just going to be harder and harder to, to pick one, I think. Yeah. Hard, harder to pick one, perhaps harder to get into one as well. <laughs> um, ah, yeah. Good point. You know, I'm point. kind of, I'm kind of a little bit blessed. That's not really a problem for me, but at the same time, I don't think that is a problem because everyone should have to prove themselves somewhere before you get yeah. to come to the you know, great races. And I mean, I have no idea as a race organizer, organizer, but having, um, uh, like proven your worthiness to be there and, 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 and not having the liability of bringing someone who maybe isn't ready to tackle a bigger event like that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's very much a thing with the Highland Trail 550 in Scotland run by, by Alan Goldsmith. He is, um, a tough guy. And, you know, I asked him to let me into the race and he sort of told me to, to sod off initially. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I kind of was nice to him and, you know, uh, you know, made my case and things. And then after the high, uh, after theatrically divide, he said, OK, look, you can come uh, uh, and compete. And I think at that point, you know, I was still very much a roadie and he was just kind of interested in seeing uh, me well out of my depth and getting my getting my head kicked in. So, but, uh, you know, thankfully, thankfully I did finish and, and that w- was always going to be the case, but I, I completely respect his decision because, you know, people think Scotland's not so bad, but once you're up right in the North of Scotland, there's not much help available coming to you and it's serious conditions up there. And there's right. a, there's a sense of responsibility on him, isn't there? Because if he, he lets someone up there and, and, and all organizers and they're out of their depth and something goes wrong you'd feel responsible. So I can completely understand the need for validation in order to get into races. You know, you've got to, you've right. got to cut your teeth, haven't you? Earn your, earn your stripes. I think so. Um, what, so with everything going on with COVID right now, and obviously there's a lot of uncertainty with, with events and gatherings and all this. Um, do you know what your next event is or do you know what it, you hope it to be or? Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I know what I'm going to do next. It's quite flexible, though. Um, 
I know what event I'd like. I, I hope Silk Road Mountain Race goes ahead, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. If it, if it does, that'd be great. If it doesn't, then fair enough. I have some other things, and this is sort of the beauty of what we do, that there are so many things out there that, that both interest me and are available. Um, and because it's, you know, ultra durance cycling is completely socially distant. So you yeah. can take on these opportunities as individual time trials and do these do some of these records more or less quite soon once once it's okay to do that morally then then I plan on getting on with a few things in in the UK and then we'll go from there but in in, in the end of the day you know the, the mountains aren't going anywhere and I'm quite happy just training my ass off and and getting in shape and I can wait that's a good point. That was actually my next question is how, uh, if at all, has the pandemic and COVID impacted your ability to train uh, to your fullest right now? And how is that going? So, yeah, interesting, because three weeks ago, I finished my final university exams on the 12th of May. And for the, well, and b between the end of well, you'd have to go back to Christmas, actually. So from Christmas until a few weeks before Atlas Mountain Race, I was writing my dissertation heavily. Then I did Atlas Mountain Race. And then from Atlas Mountain Race afterwards, I did very little riding on my bike until, you know, maybe eight hours a week averaged, probably, hmm. until the 12th of May. Uh, because I was either writing my dissertation and then that finished and then I started revising for the exams and put in, I think, 350 hours revising in those wow. eight, nine weeks, something like that. Um, <laughs> and then, so I wasn't able to ride my bike much during that sort of lockdown period anyway. So I was not very affected. And, and really it was quite sort of not fortunate timing, but sometimes these things are, you know, happen. Okay. Um, and then I finished yeah. my exam on the 12th of May, sort of the, the restrictions were pretty lifted by that point and I could go out and ride as much as I want. And that, that's what I did. Uh, so really, in honesty, I'm completely unaffected by it, uh, and I've been very lucky. Yeah, so where you are now, uh, fairly well unrestricted, unrestricted for you to be able to, uh, can y'all go camping? And, and No, 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 you can't do anything like that. Um, okay. We're still sort of, you know, socially distant, queue at the supermarket, everything's closed, but you can go out and ride your bike. And really, I only right. go from my house to my bike, to my house, to the supermarket, in normal life anyway so normal life is not affected for me because right. of the way my and normal you're, life you're out on your bike you're not going around people you're getting out there i'm assuming sorry say that again i said uh when you do go on your bike ride you're not going towards people i assume you're going on longer rides or well, like I just, way yeah out just go out into the, <laughs> so i live in i live in london which isn't great and we're moving very soon um but it's about 15 minutes from where i live to the countryside so I can get out in the countryside really quickly. And in the past week yeah. or so, I've been uh, hooking up with a few friends and just going on sort of rides with them. Uh, but before that, I, I wasn't. And yeah, you I mean, you don't need to, I can go out and ride all day and not need to stop at a shop. I just fill up my bags with some food and water. So Yeah, yeah, for sure. That brings up an interesting question. Um, so you're talking about going out and riding with friends. Do you have a preferred, like, do you like to train with people? Do you like to train with, with yourself or is it unaffected like either way? Uh, I train alone 99.9% .9 of the time. Intentionally just to prepare you for being out there alone or no, just because just, it's hard to find people to train with or this kind of stuff. I just don't like other people and don't like training with other people. It's <laughs> the honest answer for me. Riding bikes is a, riding bikes is a solitary activity and I enjoy it that way. If I do it with someone yeah. else, 
it's it's occasional and then I enjoy their company a bit, but it yes. also is not what I do. It doesn't give me what I get from riding bikes if I do it with other people. Yeah, I get that. That resonates with me and I think probably a lot of people who are listening, you know, you don't go out into the backcountry for days on end by yourself and not, you know, like it, like the solitude yeah. and, and just I, we, we all value that time. That's like our time to be on our bike, to reconnect, to enjoy nature and all, and all the, that stuff. At least it is for me. So, um, I'm sure there's a lot of people can, it was pretty good answer though. <laughs> I love the honesty. Uh, I, I mean, uh, I did buy my I, bike I, with, with, with my friend John today and that, that was really nice. And we just chatted rubbish for, for a couple of hours. It was yeah, good to see him. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, there's a couple of people I ride with and, that, and that's about it. I think you'll find a lot of kindred spirits are listening. So uh, no yeah. worries there. <laughs> Uh, all right. So let's talk a little bit about ultra endurance off-road racing becoming more popular and, and you embarking on a career as an athlete. What, what does that look like? Good question. Is, I'm not really sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe there isn't a, a career path forward. I would assume, uh, obviously getting some sponsors and racing and, doing well and uh but- i think it's less probably about doing well in races and more about being a good ambassador being a good person um, you know first and foremost i like to sort of try and inspire other people to be the best that they can be and then secondly you know do do other things but i do that objective through being the best that i can be you know i always think you should lead by example um sure and i think think you know that 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 that's more important than you know winning a race winning a race can be quite hollow um and often the best stories are are when you don't win really mm. interesting but yeah i don't think yeah, there's a career path or anything like that i think if you wanted to understand what it what it would look like and what you should do you could look at uh, perhaps trail running and things as, as it's probably you know 10 years ahead of where we are yeah, that probably is a, uh, the best example we have in this type of, I mean, it's basically the same thing just with, um, uh, no bike <laughs> Yeah, and they get to have people help them run, which I think is, yeah. <laughs> I'll reserve my opinion. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's different. <laughs> like it's you different. don't, you don't get, you know, the, and, yeah, it's just different. It's a different, that's all right. It's an, it's a even playing field for them. They're all playing by the same rules. Yeah. Um, but that is like one big difference at the end of Silk Road or Atlas, you know, when you're tired, you're you don't get someone to come and ride beside you. And, uh, anyway, I don't want to bash the ultra runners. Those guys are amazing. I, I love ultra running, but that is that, I think that is a, an important distinction. So, I mean, do you, I guess maybe a better question. I mean, that, that actually is a telling answer and, and a little bit of what I expected. I mean, there isn't like a, you know, you do this and then you get a sponsorship with this company and then you're on a team. And I mean, there, there isn't all that. So, What is, what is your personal goal as you embark on this career? Uh, yeah, you've got me for an answer there. Um, I guess what I'm wondering is as you enter, um, I mean, it's a new sport that's gaining a lot of pop. I mean, it's a newish sport that's gaining a lot of popularity. Um, we're starting to see some bigger names and people like you are looking at making ultra endurance bike racing a career. And I guess what I'm just wondering it is from your perspective, what does that look like going forward? I mean, what are your goals to, cause I mean, there isn't, there isn't this set path that you take right in a lot of other sports. So you are creating your own path forward and it will be complete. I mean, it's much like bikepacking, right? It's just like, okay, you know, we're going to go, this is a landscape and I'm going to plan, make a plan. And I'm going to go out there and I'm going to do the best that I can. I guess that's the way I look at it. 
Yeah, you're right. There's no, you know, progression path. You don't go from grade E to grade D to grade, you know, you don't, there's nothing. So you can make it up as you go along and you can do exactly what you want to do. And and this sport for me is very much about doing it the way I want in, in an honest way to myself. So I'm going to do the races, the events, the records that I want to do, really. And that does also involve pushing the, the frontier of what we are doing. And I have some things in mind that I'm, that I'm projects in mind that, that are currently non-existent that I want to do mm. to, to take us to new places really. And I think the, 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 the reason that why I want to sort of make a career out of it is because if I want to train completely full time, then I need money. So I, so it has to become a career and there's nothing wrong mm. with that. And Everything I do, I have to do 100%. There's no other alternative for me as a person. And I want to see just how good I can be. And if I find out what that is, then I can close the book on the chapter and move on. But if I am not able to, you know, get an answer to that, there will always be a question mark, you know, a chip on my shoulder, you know, an, an unhappiness and I won't ever be able to close that. And I can see myself being 70, 80 years old, sat in my chair, <laughs> you know, going, if only I'd been able to do that. And so that's the reason that I have to go 100% and full in and just try to, to, to see so I can see how good I can be. And hopefully along the way, push the frontier of what we're doing and inspire others to, to do that themselves. Well said, man. It's a it's a really exciting time in in yeah. the sport that we all love. Um, because as, as a dot watcher, um, I get to sit back and watch as as you and others are really um, championing uh, all of this forward, especially in like the racing sector. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm a personally a fan and looking forward to where it <laughs> Thank goes. You. Um, it's yeah, gonna, it's, I mean, I get to sit back and watch, yeah, <laughs> so, <me too. laughs> um, well, speaking about watching, um, how much, if any, do you compare yourself to other racers either, um, either as a way to like learn from them or for inspiration, or is it just about you? Mm, I think it depends. Like if you're talking about during a race, then not at all. If you're talking about outside of races to try and learn, then I am fascinated by analyzing things and that does include other people. Um, and I will, I wouldn't say I compare myself, but I will analyze them, see what they're doing, take some from it, discard other bits and, and try and improve. Right. Is there anyone in particular that stands out to you or, and, or maybe even a better question would be like a performance or something that you just were like, wow, that's, you know, kind of opened up your mind to, to something that you were unaware of or anything like that? Um, yes and no. I think when I was a bit greener, Christoph Elligard and, and his performance in the Transcontinental were just mind-boggling. Nowadays, not so much because it's it's within the realms of achievability for myself. Mm. So, I mean, what I heard, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like um, you've done enough and you've proven to yourself enough that uh, you are capable of um, probably just pursuing your best and finding that. And so it's now become, um, instead of like looking to others for inspiration, it feels like you now have an understanding that you can compete 
um, at a high level. And it's now just about like maximizing your own performance to do your best. Yes, I agree with the part about trying to achieve my best. And it's always been about that. I don't necessarily compare myself with others, but I do still take inspiration from others. For example, um, Dustin Errol at the Highland Trail 550 last year. His, his performance there was just pretty mind-boggling, um, getting around just over three days in, in that weather. And, and I just saw that and I thought, wow, you know, that's, that's incredible. And, and he works full-time for Revelate Designs Bags mm-hmm. in, in Anchorage. And I kind of thought, crikey, this guy is, you know, pretty something <laughs> special. You know, doesn't have much time to train. Just turned up, ridden around and, and, and smashed it. So, yeah, I, I still completely take inspiration and they're still completely blown away by incredible performances nice well let's dig into um some of your achievements and uh and i wanted to start with the tcr uh transcontinental race for those who don't know and actually while we're um talking about it do you can you just tell us a little bit about the tcr and what it is just for anyone who isn't as familiar with that event yeah so the transcontinental race uh was started by michael several years ago now before he's passed away And he sort of raced from London to Istanbul as the first leg of his around the world record. And at that point, he then kind of had a lot of thinking time and went on to think that it'd be incredible to have a race that went from London to Istanbul that was kind of more accessible, you know, than than the around the world because it took less time. So nowadays it goes from uh, sort of France or Belgium generally to the, you know, so it goes west to east or east to west across the entire continent has four checkpoints that you have to kind of go through, but otherwise you plan your own route. So there is no fixed route. And this is one of the really interesting, fun and dynamic things about the race, because it means that everyone's racing a different route. Uh, it's about 4,000 kilometers in length and generally around 35,000 meters in elevation and often one in around uh, eight, nine days. And some people can take up to, you know, two months. One of my favorite things about it is the the A to B and not having a set route. I love, I could see with your mind, loving to analyze things, the, uh, just going through all the different route options and trying to figure out which route (laughs) is best. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you decide which route you're going to take and what that's like? Yeah. Um, a long process. So I n- would spend around 100, maybe a bit more hours planning routes. And I use routes because I will create multiple options to between each checkpoint. I generally break it up checkpoint to checkpoint. I create multiple options and then sort of look at each of the options and, and go from there. So I'll create like a flatter one, a hillier one, a shorter one, a longer one, you know, one taking busy roads. Less, but, you know, I look at all the options and plan each of them as if I were going to use it and then start to compare them. Uh, it's a very involved and long process. Yeah, so but you're I, starting four different routes from scratch. scratch well, and then you maybe, start to maybe even more in certain areas. Well, you, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then... And then... I get to eventually the point where when I can load it up on my GPS device, I know that that route is 100%. And I can trust it completely because when you're sleep deprived after seven days, you don't want to be making decisions. I'm not changing anything on the road. I want to know that that road is is perfect. 
Right. So once you set out on the TCR, have you selected a route and it won't change? Or if weather or something else becomes a factor, you have mm. other options you can fall back on? I do occasionally take secondary options on, on, on my GPS. And then I, I have had the, the Rider GPS app on my phone for the like past couple of years while doing the race. So I could always change stuff or have multiple options on the phone and then send it to the device. But generally, I just have to like to have one option on the device and there's literally you know i break it down into 200 kilometer sections and so i have what 20 you know files transferred over and then i can just literally just go through one two three four five you know i, I i'm a bit stupid and i like to keep things really simple and i don't want to make mistakes so keep it simple <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah like you said you're tired sleep deprived everything else uh keep it simple yeah um out of, so you won TCR in 2017 and 2018. Yes. Do you have a, a favorite race or which one was more special to you? So the, the, there's no comparison to the first time I won. A because I've been trying for, or this was my third attempt, mm -hmm. so it was it was really meaningful. And it was the year that Mike Hall had died. He died, you know, a few months before the race, and there was a lot mm -hmm. of uncertainty yeah. about if it was going to go ahead. And then it did go ahead. And I mean. You never know anything for certain, but I knew when I sort of set off and headed to Vorgen in Belgium at the start of the race that this was my year. I just knew. And nothing was going to get in my way um, because I just wanted it, you know, and and I wanted it for, you know, I guess for him. I mean, everyone deserves to win and, and, and all of that. Right. But uh, yeah, I just really wanted it. So they're, they're, I'll never eclipse that feeling. And I, 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 I can bring back the entire race in my head. And I, the, the memory of the final 100 kilometers riding into the finish in Meteora, which was magical. You know, it's this UNESCO World Heritage Site in Greece. And it's, it's, it's mind-blowing at the, at, the, you know, at the most mundane of times. But this was the most emotional of times of, you know, in a long time. And there's a final climb. And I made this almighty effort up the final climb and I was just, you know, flooded with tears <laughs> and tears of joy, tears of sadness and, and, and this, this sort of pent up emotion from, you know, having tried for three years to, to, to you know, finish this race and, and, and do my best. And then from the, from the tragic loss and, and all of this just came out and it was, you know, wow. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's powerful just listening to you talk about it. Yeah, so um, no, I'll never match that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I hope you don't mind me asking this question, um, but Frank Simmons was killed at the beginning of that race in the first few hours. Yeah. Do you mind talking about how, I mean, because, yeah, Mike Hall was super fresh, and then we start this event, and it was it was pretty, I know, I mean, it shook me up, and I'm sure a lot of cyclists, and you were in the race, so do you mind sharing how that impacted you? Yeah, I mean, thank you for bringing that back up, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry I overlooked. I just sort of, in honesty, forgot, and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll own that. Yeah, yeah, it was it was very strange actually because I raced with my telephone more or less turned off, um, mm. and it was so we'd ridden through the night. It was the first day into the mid afternoon. You know, it was very hot, and I bumped into a guy I know called Matt Falconer uh, who was racing as well, and he sort of or I rode up next to each other, and I you know my phone had been off, so I knew nothing. And he said to me, have you heard? And I said, heard what? And he said, uh, someone, someone's been killed. And I said, you, you, what? 
And, you know, there was this visceral emotion and it was just tragic, utter tragedy. And I was a bit lost for an hour at, at what to do. Obviously, I sort of kept yeah. pedaling forward, but I'd lost the impetus. Um, and as, as I, headed, I was heading towards the first checkpoint in, in Liechtenstein, which I was expecting to arrive in, in the late evening. So I continued on to this checkpoint. And as I rode further and further, I sort of thought about it more and more. And I didn't know what was going on in the race. I still hadn't turned my phone on. I didn't really want to hear from anyone or speak to anyone. I knew what the situation was and I was digesting that myself. And I mm -hmm. remember sort of deciding that if it were me who had been killed, I would want people to continue if they felt comfortable to do so. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it, be their own choice and so by the time i arrived at the first checkpoint it was obviously a bit um weird when i got there uh, very strange emotions between me and the other volunteers on, on arrival yeah um i remember james robertson being there and actually juliana burring being there and it was, it, was, it was strange and were you did you arrive at that checkpoint in first at that point i uh, to be honest i actually don't remember and i i, I, I really don't i don't think so because it's not... But you weren't celebrating, it wasn't... Uh, I mean, you weren't like... Uh, of course. <laughs> no, so yeah. I decided uh, what I was going to do is check into the checkpoint. I was going to sleep for three hours or so, wake up, and then make a decision then. Because I was tired uh, by that point, because I've been riding for 36, 38 hours or something straight. And I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do. So I got into bed at the hotel, uh, ate some food, slept for three hours, woke up, and I woke up and I thought... I'm going to finish this. That that's, it's 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 the only thing I know how to do, and it's my mm -hmm. best attempt to honour the the tragic loss of of, of Frank. And uh, yeah. you know, his son Job came out to to the finish that year actually, and I, I remember riding bikes around Greece with 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 Job, and uh, we all went on a sort of you know celebratory ride uh, to celebrate Frank's Frank's life. Uh, oh. That's really nice. And I appreciate you sharing that. I know that has to be tough. Uh, just as a watcher, and I'm sure many people, all of our hearts sank and we all said no at the same time. And um, I can't imagine what it'd be like to be in the event and, you know, trying to win, trying to do your best and then also um, have that happen. So, yeah, I think yeah, that's, you, you hit then you, you can only do your best, can't you? And sometimes that's wrong yeah. and sometimes that's right. And sometimes it's neither. But uh, all you can do is your best and what you think is best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, thank you for sharing that. Let's, uh, let's talk about your 2018 TCR and you, um, let me look. So you finished that one. Let me pull my stats TCR. So you finished it, what, three hours faster ish in 2018, no. but you finished 20. Your stats are wrong. No. <laughs> All right. Well, well, clear me up. What do we, what do we, got? Uh, it's like 20, 20, 25 hours faster. <laughs> 25. Okay, perfect. And then you finished 24 hours before second place. Yeah, right. Yeah, so I finished no, 24, 25 hours ahead of second place, which is Matt Falconer. Yeah, in, in 2018. Yeah. 20, okay, 2017 was maybe like 22 hours or something. I can't remember exactly. Gotcha. Um, and so what was the difference from 2017 and 2018? You just get better, better conditions. I'm, I'm curious. I mean, that's a big. 24, 25 hours. I mean, that's a lot over, you know, eight days. Yeah. Um, I don't think the difference in my condition was 
dramatic between the two years. I was definitely a little bit faster in the second year, or a little bit stronger myself in the second year. Not 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 significantly. In honesty, that second year actually slowed up towards the finish. Um, I remember being in Albania, and I could have ridden straight through to the finish as I had done the previous year. So in twenty seventeen, I was seven hundred and eighty k, give or take, you know, from the finish in Romania in Craiora. And I woke up and I thought that that's the final time I'm going to sleep in this race. I'm done. And I, mm-hmm. and, and I knew Mike would have ridden that distance straight out. And I thought, oh, what better way to honor him? You know, at that point, the race was mine and I was in first place. And I thought, this is how I'm going to finish the race. It's my tribute. And I rode straight out and it was 48 hours from there to the finish. Um, and it was horrific. <laughs> you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a cyborg. These things don't happen easily. Uh, and that was, that was painful. <laughs> and in 2018, I was again in the lead and, you know, that sort of distance from the finish and then got to Albania. And I was riding, riding through Tirana in Albania. And I decided to myself, actually, you know, I'm going to stop at a hotel in Tirana, uh, sleep for six hours, and then just ride to the finish. Um, the difference is that the Final 24 hours in 2017 were excruciating uh, physically and mentally because I was so tired and it was just the longest day of my life. Mm. And I didn't really want to have that negativity, that pain mentally and physically again if I didn't need to. And I was far enough ahead in the race that it was just unnecessary. And I thought, thought to myself, well, I've done that before. I know I can do it. I don't really need to do it. Although in these races, you should always get as much time in the bank as you can in case things go wrong. Mm. And I just thought to myself, I don't need to prove myself to myself because that's the only person that I try and prove myself to. And why not just have a sleep, enjoy it, and then ride into the finish and, and make, you know, and, and enjoy it. But regrettably, I got my timing slightly wrong. <laughs> this was the second year we arrived in Meteora, and it was the second time that I arrived and rode through the UNESCO World Heritage Site in the dark. <laughs> so I kind of shot myself in the foot a little bit with, with, with that extra sleeping. Had I not done that, I would have arrived in uh, sunset at the UNESCO World Heritage Site. So you, you get what you pay for, don't you? <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I guess so. I, I can't sit here as an arm short chair quarterback and uh, question your decisions. Uh, <laughs> like you said, you're not a cyborg. This stuff is very hard. And uh, it's just fascinating for me to, to hear what's going on and uh, the, you know, yeah, how, how you process all this stuff while you're out there having been out there for eight days or seven days or whatever it is. Yeah. So in 2019, you were robbed or almost robbed on a mountain pass. And I don't know the whole story. I've heard of it. So can you tell me and us what happened? Yeah. So this was at the Silk Road Mountain Race in Kyrgyzstan. Um, and, I, and I will get out in front of this and advocate that Kyrgyzstan is a beautiful place. Go there. And there isn't a guy from the tourism industry with a gun to my head here right now in my house. I, I, I actually love Kyrgyzstan and it's amazing. I just had an unfortunate incident. Sure. So I'd been racing for, let's say, five days it was something like that i'd set off from checkpoint three towards the finish the f- there was nothing between checkpoint three and the finish that was the final leg got a two three hours away from the checkpoint and i was in second place at this moment uh, Jakob, who went on to win the race had, had sort of passed me after leaving the checkpoint and he'd ridden off he, he, he rides quite a lot faster than i do uh, i just keep riding 
and it was around midnight. I had only my head torch on and the, it was completely dim. So I could just see a little bit of the sandy trail in front of me, but I was going uphill very slowly, sometimes walking, sometimes pushing. So there wasn't really much I needed to see. I had music in, I think both ears. So I was, you know, tired and in my own world, completely out of it, to be honest. And all of a sudden, in the darkness, just the ground sort of shook. And then from the bushes on my left, a horse rider jumped out in front of me. And then a horse rider jumped out behind me. And I thought, oh, you know, these Kyrgyzstani people, they're all friendly. They're just saying hello. <laughs> what are, you know, we're in the mountains. I'm in the It's a bit weird. And I sort of stopped and I just kind of started to try to say hello. And immediately they just sort of clearly very drunk and just started shouting at me. And you know when you get, you just know that the situation is not just not good, right. but like really bad. Sure. And this went on for 30 seconds. I sort of tried to calm it and I realized this isn't getting calm. So I pushed my bike off the track into some bushes, through the bushes, around them, back onto the path, now in front of the first horse rider, who had not moved at this point. I got back on the bike and just started pedaling off slowly up the hill because I didn't really want them to think that I was scared or running away or anything. I got maybe 10, 15 meters away and then started pedaling reasonably fast. I got maybe 30 seconds and it was probably more like 10, you know, because time is warped, isn't it, up Mm. the path. And I was going pretty slowly still because it was quite a steep hill. And I just had this almighty like charge from behind me. And these two horse riders came up and the first one shoved me off my bike and then jumped down. And then one of them, the second one sort of grabbed me. The first one then started trying to go through my bike. And then now he was shouting the word money. I don't know where he'd got that from. He didn't use it before. Well, the second one sort of held me. And this was sort of going from bad to worse, really. They had like... uh, dogs as well and things and I didn't really want to give them money um, because my money was with my passport and if I give them money how much money are they going to then take from me and then are they going to think every cyclist that comes through is you know cash dispenser so I sort of felt some responsibility to 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 others that were going to come through and then also I'm not really someone who's that intimidated by people and I wasn't going to let them intimidate me and take from me. So I, it's sort of a very quick instance. I calculated the fact that they're drunk. They're going to be quite slow. I've got adrenaline going through me, although I'm tired, I'm completely lucid. I'd ridden my bike downhill before with some other horse riders who were very friendly and I knew that I was faster. So I I quickly decided that what I had to do was get them off me, get on my bike and get downhill. And so in a sort of a split instinct, I, I sort of turned my elbow around, hit the one behind me, and he sort of stumbled back. I then t- jumped over the bike and, and, and pushed the one on the bike off it, swung my bike around, threw a leg over, and just like shot downhill and descended like I've, I've never descended before, all with my uh, very low uh, headlamp on. <laughs> and so, so at this point, like I, I've got away from them. I'm not looking back because I can't – I'm concentrating on going ahead, and I'm trying to work out, okay right. – I'm away, but how far do I need to go to feel safe downhill Mm -hmm. in the wrong direction? And I kind of thought about it and I thought about it and I decided, look, there's, there's actually no, 
limit on how far I need to go because these guys know these mountains. They've got dogs. They're probably a bit upset that I've, you know, perhaps embarrassed them and, and maybe right. hurt them. They're probably going to come looking for me if I'm if I'm close because our dogs are smelling me. So I decided in the end that the only reasonable course of action I felt was to descend all the way back down to the tarmac road, uh, 25k away that I just spent the past two hours climbing, and then ride the 16k back to the checkpoint and um and and, and reassess from there once once daylight was open because yeah. being in that area i didn't feel safe and i couldn't pass through again in a period of time that felt reasonable uh, before daylight had broken so i thought i'd go back r- reset and 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 see go from there what okay. happened next yeah. is i got back down to the tarmac road where i could get cell reception and I knew that there were Lael and Jay not that far behind me. And I, I obviously felt a sense of responsibility towards them. And then also Jakob, who was ahead of me as well. Who knows what had happened to Jakob? So the first thing I did was call. Um, you know, you have a number on your Brave card that I had saved in my phone for shit hits the fan emergencies. And I called that. And uh, Nelson's dad, Chris, answered because he was in charge of the phones. And he was a bit like, what, huh? You know, and then he was like, oh. Because he, he didn't quite understand what I was saying to begin with because it was so unexpected. Like, you know, you go down the mm. list of things you're planning for and it was like, wow. So Yeah, robbed by horses. <laughs> yeah, but so what happened is, is, is immediately he could see my tracker. So I sort of like tucked myself, you know, off the road. So I was out of sight. And he was like, we're going to send a control car to you and then you're safe and we know that. And then we'll, you know, go to the police and things like that. Um, so they sent the control car to me. The control car actually took me back to the checkpoint, the sort of 16 kilometers. I got back to the checkpoint and then, well, actually, no, we went to try and find the local police first, but obviously it was past, you know, lunchtime. So they were, uh, you know, inebriated and sleeping. (laughs) We then went back to the, the, the checkpoint. I got a bed at the checkpoint and I slept until, you know, this was now three or 4 AM. I slept until daybreak. At which point then the local police had turned up because Nelson had, you know, made some phone calls and they wanted to take a statement. And I, I spent nearly the entire of the day giving statements to multiple police forces because, you know, it turns out that the first police force weren't actually in charge of that specific location. And no, they couldn't tell the other police force any of the information. So we gave it to the other, other police force. And anyway, it turned into a bit fast. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I really had no interest in anything because they weren't going to find the people and nothing was going to happen. It. so yeah. you know but uh, and it was a bit of a weird situation Lael and Jay had passed through that area they'd woken up from their sleep at the checkpoint continued on and passed through safely you know and were they aware of that going they were made aware it? of what had gone on but then a control car sort of followed them most of the way but then the control car got mm. stuck but the time that they passed through was sort of like in the early hours of the morning you know towards daybreak so it was you know pretty reasonably safe that these guys were passed out gotcha. and long and then i spent a second night at the checkpoint and i still wasn't really sure what i was going to do if i was going to continue or not because i was quite thrown i woke up the next morning leisurely didn't set an alarm had some breakfast and it was about 9 a.m and i had my breakfast and i still hadn't really decided what i was going to do i had my breakfast and i just sort of remember finishing the second breakfast i had and i thought right that's (laughs) it time to saddle up the bike and get on the road and get this done and 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 it was sort of the decision was made in that instance 
And so from where you were at, did you have to go over that pass once more? Yeah. So because I got that lift in the control car and things like that, the only reasonable solution that I saw was for me to begin again from the checkpoint, from a place where I had been right. unassisted and to then complete the entire route unassisted. And was that your personal decision or was that passed down by the race director? It was a mutual decision because it was the, it was the way that right. we both just saw the right it thing as possible. Yeah, it was, it was the only way it was possible and it wasn't a, there wasn't any discussion up for it between either of us because it was the way it was going to be done. Correct. Gotcha. So what was it like? To, you've had some uh, crazy experiences with, um, yeah. with, with racing, but uh, what was it like to complete that race? Uh, with all that, I don't know, anxiety or fear or yeah. how did you deal with that? Both of those emotions. So left the checkpoint, daylight, went back over the pass in the daylight. Obviously I could see exactly where it happened because there was a lot of foot marks and things in the, in the dust and sand still. And at that point in the daylight, I could see the top of the pass, you know, cause I'd climbed for an hour and a half hour and 40 minutes and I could actually now see the top of the pass it was no more than five, 10 minutes riding in front of me. <laughs> And so that was how close I was. And I was just kicking myself that I was that close. <laughs> Once I got past that point, the emotions sort of started to settle down a bit into the rest of the day. They were okay. And I continued yeah. riding and I felt better emotionally. However, once the sun set that night and it became darkness again, I was on a reasonably, I was on a dirt road, but all of the shepherds were traveling through the night to go to the market town to sell their flocks. And so there was a lot of traffic on the road for Kyrgyzstan. You know, I'd be getting past every 20 minutes, which is a lot there, rather than seeing absolutely no one. And this sort of started to give me quite severe anxiety because every car that came past, I thought was going to try and rob me. Right. And I sort of ended up hiding in a ditch every time someone came along. And it got a bit ridiculous in the end. Um, and it was stressing me out. So, I mean, to the point that this van stopped in front of me and I was riding up a hill. So it took me a few minutes, five minutes to get there. And then they started trying to flag me down. And I went up to the other side of the road, started sprinting past. And then I could see that they were just making tea and they wanted to offer me a tea and some bread. Uh. But I was, you know, I was in such a state, really. So it then started raining about three o'clock in the morning. And that was like the nail in the coffin for me because I'd intended to ride through the night to the finish. Mm. That was a nail in the coffin. I just thought, sod this. I, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, I'm just going to get some sleep for a bit. <laughs> and, and I'll get up in daylight and I'll just ride through the daylight. Uh, because I'm not riding time anymore. So I woke up three hours later, it was still raining and I thought, oh, sod this, I've had enough crap already. I'm not riding in the rain anymore. <laughs> so I went back to sleep for another hour and a half. So I'd had four and a half hours now and it was still raining and I thought, oh, well, it's not going to stop raining because I was in the clouds and I thought, oh, I better get on with it because it's never going to stop raining. I was trying to get to the finish. And so I woke up that morning, I, you know, I guess what, four or five, six, seven thirty or something like that. And then I still had a couple big passes to do and i had to ride from 7 30 that morning through the next night but thankfully that day that anxiety and stress sort of dissipated and i was able to ride through that next night reasonably comfortably and then i finished the following day uh so 30 uh 36 ish hours later well no about 42 hours later i did for yeah, about 42 hours straight i finished at around midnight it's crazy that with all of that, you still took fourth place. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess so. I mean, that's pretty, I mean, I, I don't know. Like all the, the, the two breakfasts and, you know, sleep in and uh, you were still able to pull out uh, fourth place. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I put a massive, like that massive 
42 hour push in at the end like i passed a good few people in that yeah like that was a serious hit um and i remember coming past jeff kirkov and we we chatted for a while we actually stopped for some food together at the last sort of shop for 200 kilometers or something and uh, and Mm. things Uh, but yeah so where does the silk road fall in for you um you don't like unfinished business uh but you also had a bad experience there what are you planning I wouldn't to say do it I had again? a bad yeah. experience. I'd say I okay. had an experience. Um, mm-hmm. Could have been worse. Could have not happened, but it happened. And it is an opportunity for me to learn and grow from and develop from. And I don't right. view it negatively. It just happened. And it leaves no negative emotions on Kyrgyzstan for me. And I, I can't wait to go back there. Okay, nice. So uh, unfinished business with Silk Road. Oh, 100%. That, you, that's, and that that's was, it to tick off next. And yeah. 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 Awesome. Awesome. Um, all right. Well, uh, next up, let's talk about Atlas. So this was the first year of the Atlas race, right? Yeah. This year, February, Morocco. The inaugural Atlas. Um, so no one really knew what to expect. And uh, you came in second to Sofian. Uh, four days and nine minutes. Hopefully my, <laughs> yeah. my numbers are those, correct those nine, those painful nine minutes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We Do you remember in, the last nine minutes? Yeah. We were stuck in sand, just, you know, pedaling right. super slowly and, uh, there was nothing I could do to go any faster. You know, normally I can, uh, put a bit of effort in to, 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 to get that time uh-huh. back, but there was nothing you could do when you're spinning circles in sand. <laughs> well, uh, so you finished uh, two hours and 19 minutes slower than Sofian. Um, can you take us through that race? I mean, it was so close for a, for an ultra event to only well, be two you hours say behind. That, but Sofian and I um, finished joint first together at uh, Italy Divide. The year I, that's right. Yeah. Uh, so there's not much between us. <laughs> There really isn't. Yeah, it's pretty pretty fascinating. Uh, I love a good competition, and it's just surprising to see two people so close. Uh, like I said, over such a a long distance. So, yeah, just take us through that race uh, and how it went for you. Since it was a new race, I think. I mean, a lot of people are probably super curious about it. Yeah, I mean, if you've raced one of Nelson's races before, then you know what to expect. And having been to Kyrgyzstan, I knew the kind of route that Nelson puts together. So. I- I knew it was going to be tough. I knew there'd be some unexpected things. And I knew that if you were on tarmac, it was only to get you to a real shitty point. So, yeah, I knew what to expect. Um, can you, as a person who's never raced one of his races um, and only a, a viewer, I mean, can you take us through, like, what what you can expect from his races? I mean, Yeah, Nelson, Nelson is an exquisite route master. He is meticulous in detail in finding amazing places. And incredibly thoughtful in the way he connects those places up there will be points in the race that are nice but there will also be points in the race that are absolutely horrible sometimes those horrible points are only to get you from a to b and sometimes they're just there to test you because it's meant to be hard but you will end up in absolutely beautiful places as a result and the time and attention to detail that he puts into putting a a route together is second to none so I have to commend him, really, because, yeah, he puts on a hell of a yeah. race. 
Well, also, I mean, just from a viewer, the the media, the coverage, uh, everything that they produce, I mean, it's just so well done. Um, I, I love it. I love I love seeing that kind of coverage and access to the athletes and the people who are participating. Um, you know, for us at home, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I'm I'm all for more coverage, really, because I think if you can share inspirational stories, then then you're on the right track, aren't you? Well, I got a podcast, so I'm on my way. Yeah, you're doing the you're doing the right doing the right thing. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, yes. So uh, yeah, take us take us through. So it was four days. I'm curious how much you uh, how much you slept in those four days. And everyone um, wants to know about the sleep, don't they? What about the sleep? Oh, it's it's so. And I mean, it's hard for people to understand traveling that far and sleeping so little. You know. Yeah. It, yeah. So. I guess to set the scene, I have to step back a few weeks from Atlas Mountain Race to, to sort of Please. talk about my performance. So for me, obviously, final year of university training is less than I would obviously like. Um, I was fit, but not incredibly fit coming into the middle of January. Middle of January, I actually picked up a you know common cold, you know, an illness and a bit chesty, things like that. So I didn't really ride for two weeks before coming into Atlas. Now... Sometimes that could be good. Sometimes it could be bad. And obviously, not in my opinion, is that not riding for two weeks is pretty damn bad. I got rid of the cold a couple of days before the race started in Morocco. And so I was quite uncertain about my condition, which, right. you know, led me to be a bit cautious uh, in the first day. I didn't want to go charging out of the gate like I have done in the past transcontinental and made a mess of myself. But also create the problem that these short races, you have to do that in order to be near the front. So I took a not a I took an educated decision that I needed to take it not easy, but not go 100 percent on the first day, maybe 90-95 percent on the first day, while I determined what my body was doing. Because if I went 100 mm-hmm. percent and my body was in a bad place. I'd blow up completely and it would be you pointless. couldn't recover. No. Right. But if I went 90% and my body was in a good place, I might be able to recover from that and do very well. So, yeah, everyone went charging off for the first day. I probably couldn't have kept up with them anyway had I even really wanted to. That's not, I don't know, it's not really quite me. I arrived at the first checkpoint. As So we started at 9 a.m. I arrived at the first checkpoint bit before darkness uh, so so dusk was sorting to start and I was an hour and a half behind uh, Christian Meyer uh, who was up front and then an hour behind Sofan and Jay so I thought that wasn't too bad obviously it wasn't ideal and I wasn't particularly happy but it was also what it was I then kept riding into the night and around 11 o'clock I'd been feeling a bit bad since eating before and I just sort of started feeling worse and worse and going slower and slower and I know at this point there are sort of two options one you can try and push through it and you might get even slower and you know ride through the night or two I know from previous experience if I stop rest let my body reset I generally then feel a lot better so I sort of decided at that point 11 o'clock on the first night so we'd only been riding 13 14 hours to stop sleep for you know three hours reset and hopefully my stomach was going to be a lot better and I was going to be able to ride again now obviously again not ideal but it is one of those things and and I had to do that or I thought I had to do that in hindsight you always think I shouldn't have done that but I guess when you're on the ground and you're making these decisions you're doing the best thing that you can at that point in time 
Right. Slept for three hours, woke up, felt fantastic. <laughs> so I was pretty vindicated by my decision. And I remember yeah. just getting on the pedals and hammering it. And I was then flying past people who were just crawling along. Yeah. <laughs> and it was sort of from that moment then, I knew that I was good, both with the issues I'd had with my stomach that were completely calm, but then also with my general feeling fitness and readiness to race. And right. from that moment, I started pushing. So rode all day into that night. I then slept for one, two hours that night. Again, pushing next day, sort of starting to gain more places and more places. And by this point, you know, up with Jay and stuff at the front, um, then slept for an hour and a half that night and then pushed through to the finish with like a long push from there all through the night onto that third night, um, 20 minute nap because I was sort of all over the shop. And (laughs) it gets to a point in my opinion where you start going so slowly that you're better off just stopping for 20 minutes, resetting and going again, and then you'll go faster. And the time you sort of lose by stopping for 20 minutes, you gain back in right. extra speed and, and ability. And then, yeah, arrived at the finish. Nine, so, nine, just yeah, after 9 a.m. on that fourth day. Yep. Was it, how do you evaluate your performance in, in, in that race? Um, I mean, coming in second to Sofian, so close, did it bum you out or with every, you know, the challenges that you had going into it with your stomach and then obviously with the cold and everything, were you like, okay, I mean, considering the fact that I was sick two weeks ago, that was pretty good. Um, I guess it's both. So I was satisfied with my performance. I was obviously also unhappy with the way things were, but I take full responsibility for that and own that. And in the end of the day, I got beaten by the better person and I can accept that. So yeah. I'm not, you know, I have no, you know, negative emotions. I did my best and I was beaten right. by the better person on the day. And I make no excuses for, for my performance. Uh, the, the, the sort of, you know, setting the scene and things are just simply an explanation for how it unfolded for me. And I take responsibility for, for that uh, as, as an explanation. And, and yeah, beaten by the better person. Nothing you can yeah. do in that situation. Hey, well said, man. Uh, so I, was, I would I would add I would add to that. Please like, go ahead. <clears throat> if you base all of your fulfillment and validation and satisfaction as a person on the simple metrics of win or lose or place, then you're going to be severely disappointed and lead an unhappy existence. Whereas <laughs> if you base your fulfillment and personal satisfaction on achieving your best performance irrelevant and irrespective of anyone else, then you're going to live a very happy life. Yeah, I agree that I, I like that you said life and it, it applies to everything in life and not just cycle racing. But I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. The only thing that we can do is what we can in this moment and we can do our best. And if we mess up, don't do our best, then we can choose to do better next time, you know? Yeah. So um, that's that's a great perspective to have. And I, I share it with you. Yeah. Um, so going into next year's Atlas, is there anything that, I mean, obviously besides getting sick uh, or not getting sick, do you have any, uh, any strategies or any, any ways that you would tackle it differently? No and yes. <laughs> I will race it harder. I will be fitter 
and I'll be 100% focused on that rather than 50% focused on that and 50% focused uh-huh. on achieving the best degree I can. Um, right, right, right. So, yeah, my attention won't be um, split, split between two yeah. things. Because as I say, I have to do everything 100%, which these past years has led me this massive problem that I'm trying to do two things 100%. Right. And it's incredibly difficult. <laughs> Are you excited? I mean, I'm excited listening to you, knowing that that um, now you're able to 100% dedicate to bike racing, really see what you can do. Or is there like a sense of excitement about really being able to 100% put yourself into it and see what you can accomplish? Yeah, yeah, yes, 100%. I'm incredibly excited. I'd also say, and 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 I say this in a slightly humorous way, that I'm a bit nervous because it's going to be slightly embarrassing if I get my ass kicked by a courier from France who's <laughs> working full time. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> or, or, that's or, true, or man. Dustin, Dustin, you know, making bags in in Anchorage, you know, or, or Christoph, you know, teaching school. Like if I'm out there grinding 100, percent and, and I'm getting kicked, mm-hmm. am I kicked in by these people? Yeah, <laughs> but it's an extra but, motivation. But, yeah, but I mean, this is where I, it comes back to you not basing your your fulfillment in life on on a simple metric. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I say I do. So, I do say that in a jokey way. <laughs> No, no, I totally, yeah, I, I, I think it came across that way. Um, you're, uh, in my opinion, everybody has like obviously strengths and weaknesses in cycling or in these ultra events. Do you have something you say, this is my strength, whether it's endurance or being able to go without sleep and, and then the adverse, do you have something that, uh, I don't know, that you, the, the, you always have to overcome? Um, I'm not someone who really is like, oh, these are my strengths. Now I'm so great at this. I'm so great at that. Right. I do have weaknesses. And in honesty, if pushed to give an answer to what my strengths are, I'd say my strengths or my strength is that I know what my weaknesses are. Mm. What are they? <laughs> I'm not telling you. <laughs> if, 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 if you want to work it out. <laughs> then cool but you know i think that's uh, giving up a competitive advantage <laughs> <laughs> fair enough you know it's funny whenever i interview people uh racers that um i, I there's got to be some balance of you know wanting to keep some close uh, some stuff close to the chest and uh, others you're more <laughs> willing to talk about so that's completely fair um okay so let's shift to for for listeners maybe like me who you know maybe you can do like one event a year um, out of the events that you've done, um, what do you think would be like one that someone should put on their radar or something to work towards? It's, 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 it's an impossible question, isn't it? Because I think it depends on the person who, who's asking and what True. you enjoy. True, but just from your perspective, having done a bunch of different, you know, I mean, obviously you can't answer the question for everybody out there, but just in your experience, thinking about like what someone would really um, uh, take away from maybe experience uh, or in an event. Yeah, it's, I've recommended every single race I've done to different people for different <laughs> reasons, but I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Kyrgyzstan because it's just incredible, and going to do the yeah. Silk Road Mountain Race is just uh, it make everything else in your life seem easy. Will it? Is is the Silk Road harder than Atlas, or are they just different oh, events it, it, and harder in different that, it ways? It makes Atlas Mountain Race look like a child's game. Yeah, it looks and I don't mean that very in, hard. Know, I I, can't, I don't mean that in any disrespect to anyone or anything, but it's no. it's on a different scale, you know. 
Right, right. It's yeah, it's it's a you know, different Alice thing. Mountain race. The weather at coldest at nighttime was like two degrees, and in the daytime it was like thirty. You know, it was it was it was it was, it was easy. Kyrgyzstan, and the temperature dropped on the first day as it started snowing through a blizzard, and then minus ten Celsius. I'm talking, by the way. Sorry for the American listeners. I don't know Fahrenheit. <laughs> Um, I, I don't know the conversion, but we'll look it up. It's fine. <laughs> we're we're talking. We're nice. talking like you're wearing an insulated jacket and an insulated trousers because it's uh, so cold. Right, right. And you're, you know, you're um, on, you're going along three thousand two hundred meter plateau for over twenty four hours, possibly crossing four thousand meter passes. You know, the weather changes like it does in in the Rockies in Colorado and things. So it's. I like I like the idea of Atlas based on the weather. What you're saying, uh, and if you're then, on a holiday, uh, go to Morocco. If you want an <laughs> that's expedition, what I'm saying. <laughs> go to go to Silk Road. Like you say, different strokes. I love the I love the TCR. How it's uh, point A to point B. You choose all your different routes. I love the complexity and yeah. how many options that opens up to really stretch. I mean, it, it just it, it. I don't know. It just adds a whole all these other elements. There's a dimension to that race that other races don't have, and and a dimension of like dot watcher as, as, as we we'll call them engagement because it just creates fascination right. you know i want to talk about your training um for these events and i think maybe it's going to be, be shifting now that you're uh you have more time to commit to it would it would it be fair to just maybe give us an example of what your training looks like right now um, or what it's, you know, how it's looking for the future. I, I don't know, because I feel like it might be shifting, so I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. No, I wouldn't, that I wouldn't question. say it's shifting. The, the, the only alteration is that while I'm at university, obviously, and my time is massively committed to that in, in the tune of like 50 plus hours a week, and therefore I am more time limited, so I don't have 30 hours a week to ride my bike. However, in the summer periods when I haven't been at university, I've had that time availability, so I have been able to ride 30 hour weeks. And that sort of answers the question as to how much I ride my bike <laughs> a lot. Right. So, I mean, obviously that, so 30 hours a week, but yeah, that, that's, a big that's, week. Not, that's a big week, you know, 20, 30 hours. A that's week. a big one. Well, I mean, uh, do you, do you have a coach? Do you, uh, well, let's days, start with no. there. do you have a coach or well, do you create your own programs? Uh, yeah, uh, someone actually asked me that question the other day. They asked, do you have a coach? I said, yes, myself. <laughs> So uh, I, I used to be, you know, coached and things like that. These days I, I coach myself because, uh, uh, one, I'm a control freak. Two, <laughs> I know my body better than anyone else. And I am very good at looking in the mirror and being honest. Some people can't mm. do that. Therefore, I, I can automatically translate how I'm feeling. And three, I sort of know both the training that I enjoy, which makes me ride my bike and then mm. know the training that works for me mostly to get me to probably at least 90, 95%. You know, what we do is very simple. We're not, you know, racing the Tour de France, where, you know, it's very complex, you know, in the way that you need to train. What we do is very simple. And so you don't need to worry quite as much about exactly what you're doing. Sounds like you just listed a strength, being able to, um, look at yourself in the mirror and be very honest with yourself. That's the, the strength that I said before, isn't it? Because I said, uh, I know my weaknesses. Uh, knowing your weaknesses. Yeah. You already said that. <laughs> and that takes, that takes, uh, humility. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I that, that's, that's profound. Um, so, uh, do you do anything like strength training, meditation? Yep. Uh, yep. Take us through some of that. Um, I lift, lift weights for two reasons. 
I think too, there might be a third way if I think of it as we go along. One, <laughs> uh, just have a generally healthy body. You know, cycling is very unhealthy and, you know, there are massive bone density issues and things with people who just ride their bike a lot. And, you know, being able to lift stuff up and move things around is pretty useful, especially if you get into mountain biking and hiker bike. So I do, you know, mm. push-ups, pull-ups, squats, deadlifts, core stuff, planks, things like that. I'm not religious about it. I don't really have a some regimented plan. I just sort of walk into the, the weights area and do some stuff. And, and that's good enough. Mm. Like, I don't need to be, you know, trying to become um, Mr. Mr. Olympic or something. So that, that's Yeah, you don't want that. that muscle to carry around. You just want to be... No, I carry a bit of muscle, but it's very functional, you know, and, and it's functional. Function, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and. Yeah. And then, you know, for, for sort of injury prevention and things like that, it's pretty good lifting. And so, so yeah, two reasons. And and what about uh, health, diet, anything? Because I know a lot of people will um, shift their diets like, you know, 30 days out. Maybe they'll cut out caffeine. They'll um, cut out booze or whatever. Mm-hmm. How, how closely do you follow your your what you're intaking and, and that aspect of it? Uh, so I don't follow it, but I eat very healthy anyway and have done for a very long time. So it doesn't need to be followed because it's natural. Um, don't get me wrong. I'll eat an ice cream here or there or some chocolate. You know, I'm not a saint, but I also, (laughs) you know, I cook all my meals from scratch every day. I don't eat anything in a packet or stuff like that. Um, everything is fresh. I don't drink alcohol. Very occasionally will I have like a beer or something, so I don't need to do worry about that. Um, mm. I don't switch up my diet. I don't have to eat healthy, nutritional food all the time, and a hell of a lot of it. You know, I, yeah. eat, I eat five square, Keep- five square meals a day. <laughs> wow! Yeah, I got to feed the engine, right? Yep. So, um, let, what about the mental health side? That's that's an area, especially in this sport, that I'm like really interested in you know, eight days you're out there by yourself pretty much and you have the mental strength to keep pushing and, and you've achieved some incredible accomplishments. So thank you. (laughs) How much training do you do on the mental side? And I don't know. Yeah. How let's go there. Um, direct training, none indirect training, a hell of a lot. So like if you're going out riding a bike in winter and it's raining and it's crap, that's mental training right there, isn't it? Because you don't want to do it. It's a bad day, but you go out and you get it done. You become mentally stronger from doing that. And I've got, I guess, eight years of banking things like that now. You know, doing right. hard interval sessions. I don't want to do training when I'm super tired. You know, all of that sort of stuff. Banked and races. Every time I do a race, I get stronger. Every time. Every time I learn right. something because I make mistakes every time. And so every race I do, I get stronger and stronger. So I do a lot indirectly. Which is also direct. But. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I get exactly what you're saying. And I've, it's something I've talked about a lot before. I mean, you have these mental or physical roadblocks and they're they're just that. Like once you learn how to uh, beat it, you know, you're like, oh, I can't go that fast. Well, then you do. Yeah. And then but all you're really doing is training your mind to realize that you're more capable than you thought you were. The more barriers you break through, the more things you accomplish and you choose to learn from them, right? Yeah. Then, uh, it just opens up your mind to, okay, just how, I mean, I can just keep going. I mean, th- th- there's, there's a sort of anecdote that's worth raising because it, it, it's, it, well, it's a very good anecdote. I had a, an epiphany, or I don't know how you'd say an epiphany moment at the Highland Trail 550 last year. Okay. So I was 
less than 12 hours from the finish after having had some, you know, issues earlier on in the race and, you know, eventually so now. But I was 12 hours from the finish. I'd just eaten some dinner because it was about six o'clock and fixed, you know, my two inner tube tubes. So I had two inner tubes good now. And I had tubes in both of my tires because, you know, I'd had some massive issues. Basically, I was a complete novice, didn't have a bloody clue what I was doing, got my ass <laughs> you know. But right. here I was, okay. you know, continuing on, making the best of it and learning. Rode out of town and got maybe 10 minutes out of town down this little, like, towpath out of Ford Augustus. And I got a puncher. And I thought, oh, God's sake, I only just fixed that thing. <laughs> so I fixed, fixed that. Well, I swapped the inner tube straight away, and then I thought, I'm riding into the night. I don't want to be patching another tube in the night, so I'm going to patch that tube now. So it's done. So then I spent another, you know, 20 minutes patching that tube. So I was there for about half an hour. And Okay. Continued along, cycling along the road, and the weather had been atrocious, so it had been so hard on your bike. I then went to shift, and um, the SRAM that I was using was not great. And it just sort of, the cable snapped. And then the shifter sort uh, of, you know, well, obviously broke because the cable had snapped. Yeah. And I just thought, oh, could my evening get any worse? But, you know, at this point I was pretty downbeat. And so I just sat down for a moment. And because in these instances, it's easy to get riled up or caught up in the moment. So I sort of sat down for a moment. I didn't start fixing the bike immediately. I sat down and just sort of took five minutes to, to sort of breathe to myself and relax before I was going to continue and sort this issue out so that I could do it in a productive way rather than just sort of lashing out at it. And I actually had this sort of memory of something Jay had said, Jay, Jay Peter Very had said previously come into my head. And he said that these moments that we face, and he phrased it really well, so that's why I explained how I went through it, are tests. Mm. And if you view it as a test and can you complete and pass that test, then it provides you an opportunity to, to sort of, you know, validate yourself and to excel rather right. than just viewing it as a negative situation, view it as a test. So then you have the potential mm -hmm. to succeed and to learn and to grow from that. So I thought this is just a test. If I can pass this test, I can learn, I can grow, mm -hmm. I can develop and I can become stronger. And from that moment on, I was just positive about this. And I then proceeded to spend the next hour and a half dealing with this issue because I was obviously pretty tired. My hands weren't working great at this point in time. Changing cables is never the easiest thing at the best of times. Next to this river, while it getting eaten alive by Scottish midges <laughs> in, the, oh in, the, in the now drizzle as the dusk and then night set in. And this was, you know, not the most, but one of the upper testing experiences I've had because of all those factors together because it was unbearable getting eaten by these midges as I was trying to thread this cable through patiently yeah. while I couldn't really see very well and I felt tired. But I thought about it as a test and I just viewed it as something that I could pass and, and grow from. And I did. And it just completely changed the outlook on that situation and, and, and situations since. So that was a yeah. pretty big moment and I, and I learned a lot there. Man, I got to tell you, like the moment you like said that it's a test and then like walk through it, it, it like instantly shift shifted in my mind, you know, like I can see the change and just how you're going to mentally approach something. And if you pass that test, you get to go to the next one, yeah. you know, 
I can't think of a better way to end the show, to be honest with you. Those are wise words. <laughs> Is there anything uh, that, that you wanted to share that we didn't get a chance to talk about? Uh, no, I think, I think, you know, it's great questions and it's been a pleasure talking, really. Yeah, well, dude, thank you so, so much for coming on all the way from UK. It's been a, it's just been a crazy year. It's a crazy time. Um, but I think we're all ready to get back to uh, some normalcy, hopefully sooner rather than later. And looking forward to just following some dots and watching <laughs> to see how you do. And hopefully you and I can uh, chat again one day about some other events. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. Thank you very much. All right. Yes, sir. Have a good one, man. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay, everybody, that's all we got for today. Thank you to James Mark Hayden for coming on. Truly a pleasure. I really enjoyed that conversation, and I can't wait for racing to get kicked off, get some dot watching going, sit back and relax at home with a whiskey and watch those guys suffer, and girls, all the people. Earlier today, I shared a post on social media, and I uploaded an audio file to podcast platform about how bikes or death is going to be changing to be more supportive and inclusive of people of color, specifically black people. It would mean a lot if you went and listened to that. It's something that's very important to me and very timely with everything that's going on. And it's time to do things differently, especially in the cycling and outdoor sector where it is just so very white. Okay, everybody, you know what to do. If you can, if you have the privilege, the luxury, the ability, the financial resources, if you're not working three jobs or whatever, if you don't have a knee on your neck and being choked out by a cop, then go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. Just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 